Welcome to the weekly Dharma Talk podcast from the Columbus Karma Teksam Choling Buddhist Meditation Center. This week's Dharma Talk is entitled On and Off the Cushion, Bringing Life to Practice and Bringing Practice to Life by Eric Weinberg. How can we use meditation to deal with the joys and sorrows of our lives? Eric discusses how practicing non-judgmental awareness of our thoughts can help us to let go of clinging and expectations off the cushion and how our everyday experiences can inform and deepen our daily meditation practice. If you like our Dharma Talk series, please consider donating to Columbus Karma Texum Choling at columbusktc.org. Enjoy the podcast. This is uh, the Sunday uh, Dharma Talk from Columbus KTC. My name is Eric Weinberg. I guess you can see that on the bottom of the screen now. I'm a meditation instructor at Columbus KTC, and every once in a while I have uh, this wonderful opportunity to give a Sunday Dharma Talk. Um, This weekend's Dharma Talk uh, concerns uh, just reflections I have about practice on the cushion and also how that uh, affects what happens off the cushion. Because at least for me, I don't know if there are any monks on here or not, or uh, who might be listening, but I'm just an ordinary person, a householder with a job and a mortgage and all the rest. So my days aren't spent 100% in a um, monastic setting or retreat setting or anything like that. And um, honestly, uh, at this stage of the game, I can honestly say that I'm grateful for this life. I don't have a uh, overwhelming desire for it to be different than it is. And I've become very, very appreciative of what the Dharma brings to my life and uh, how it brings it to my life. So that's what I wanted to share about today. Um, I have a couple examples that I wanted to share uh, from the lives of other people as well. And um, hopefully this talk will come together for you and become encouragement as well as um, a way to look at how life's events unfold, even if they seem difficult in the moment or even if they seem great in the moment. The way we start our Dharma talks on Sunday is to uh, chant the refuge prayer together. Um, Because really it's only me that's talking or chanting and uh, I can't even see you, which is slightly weird. Um, I'll just chant it through once in Tibetan and then kind of uh, reframe it in English and then chant it through in Tibetan again. Because I think it's important in our practices that um, we actually understand the practices that we're doing and um, they they transform our minds through both just the uh, blessing and the energy that they carry with them no matter what language you practice in but also the uh, insight and understanding that we have and that starts right with the most basic first practice of every day, which is refuge. And um, it's so valuable that I like to share it uh, both ways. Um, In its original language with the energy of and blessing of the original words, and also in my native language, which is English, um, in order for a deep understanding and imprint to happen in my mind.
Sanjay Chudong Sulki Chognama Changchu Pardu Dagni Kyapsu Chi Dagi Jin Su Chi Pe Sunam Ki Rola Penchir Sanjay Ruparsham Until I reach the heart of enlightenment. I take refuge in the Buddha, the supreme, loving, compassionate teacher. I take refuge in the Dharma, the path that he has opened to me the teachings that he has given. And I take refuge in the Sangha. My companions on the path, both those who have gone to enlightenment before me and those that accompany me and walk side by side with me in this life, in the footsteps of the Buddha. Sanje Chudong Suki Chuknama Chanshu Pardu Dagni Kyatsuchi Dagi Jinsu Jipe Sunamki Prola Pinchir Sanje Druparshal So um, I was asked to give this Dharma teaching, and uh, I was asked what I'd like to talk about. As it turned out, uh, in the last few months, there have been a lot of things in my life that have been, um, let's say, extraordinary in their demands upon me. Um, one was that my mom, who was 94, fell and broke her arm and I began once we got her through the hospital and I was visiting her every day there we began to uh, rehab that arm and uh, I'd visit her in the rehab hospital every day and it was lovely we actually had great talks uh, at 94 uh, she was still sharp as a tack and we could talk about things uh, like the things that scare us most, like, you know, ultimately this body dies and what that's all about. From a Buddhist point of view, um, that's a very interesting conversation because there's this sense that we're not this body and we're not who we think we are, you know, usually we think we're the objects of our attention. We think we're um, whatever our emotion is in the moment or whatever thought we're deeply engrossed in or whatever our sense experience is, our hearing, our taste, our, what we smell, what we feel tactly and so forth or generally what our mood is, you know, how do we wake up in the morning? What's the condition of our mind? And Buddhism, of course, teaches that it's not like that. Um, that if we're happy or unhappy, if we're angry or sad, no matter what the condition, it doesn't arise from somewhere else it actually arises from our own karma our own propensities and the way that we're responding to the life that we have whether it's um, delightful what we call delightful in the moment or painful or what we call painful in the moment and that's up to us so what the buddha did he didn't give us a whole bunch of beliefs about one thing being um good and another thing being bad what 
what he pointed to was some fundamental truths that um, are the way things are, which is the first one of which is that we have the same fundamental nature that the Buddha has. It's just the, the only difference being that the Buddha had uncovered it and recognized things as they are, recognized the reality of awakened mind as being the reality of his own mind. And we don't experience our minds that way yet, and that's why it's a belief. The other thing that he posited was that everything's interdependent, that all things arise with causes and conditions. Everything is interdependent. So everything we think, do, and say matters. And so we, we wind up at the beginning of Buddhism with this. And in one sense, it's overwhelming. I mean, you find out that you are actually a Buddha to be, uh, not just somebody trying to get the next promotion or win the next tournament or uh, get good grades and maybe have, you know, the rewards of good friends and a good family and all that kind of stuff that you're working toward and find to work towards them, but you're already a Buddha to be. We're not all those other things. All those other things appear and disappear. And we know they do. We know about impermanence. We know about the ultimate impermanence death. Um, my mom and I, we talked about all that kind of stuff. And we also talked about politics um, and things like that. She was very interested in all that since before I was born. Um, she actually was part of integration sit-ins in the city of Detroit in the 1940s. Um, so I'm very proud of her. And she taught me that the, the opposite of love isn't hate. The opposite of love is indifference. And the Buddha said something like that too. He said, um, there are really three mental poisons. And those are desire and hatred and indifference. And it turned out that, um, you know, at the stage of the game she was at and where I am too, is there's still things that we really dislike and we really hate and don't have the skill yet to work with. So we talked about all those things. At the same time, my youngest son was planning to be married. He did get married, in fact, on October 24th. And for any of you who know about such things, uh, weddings require a lot of attention and a lot of planning, and it's kind of all hands on deck. So we were involved with that at the same time as um, my mom rehabbing. She did really well. And a week and a half before the wedding, I was visiting with her and we spent a couple of hours and she was doing so well that um, she was doing so well that we were planning on springing her from uh, the jail, the prison that is uh, skilled nursing care when you're trying to rehab at 94. It's a lot of work. It's not easy. And it does feel like it feels like that. So um, with great good humor, we were trying to figure out she was doing so well. We were trying to figure out how to get her to this wedding because um, my son and my new daughter-in-law just love her to pieces. So everybody wanted this. And the next day, it was literally uh, the week before the wedding, the Sunday before the wedding, I got a call from uh, the skilled care facility that her blood pressure had crashed. I rushed over there and we called 911 and got her to the hospital where they were able to help her. And um, I kind of insisted, she, she was ready to let go right there, but I kind of insisted that 
uh, we do our best to help her. And the reason for this was I wanted my brother to get in from out of town to be with us. And um, my son, Sam, and other family members were coming in too for the wedding. So I thought there would be a chance that she could be surrounded by loved ones if we could hang on for a little bit. And she did. Um, my brother got in town. Um, my son got in town. And we were all with her at um, at the side of her bed as she, as she passed. It was truly a um, beautiful passing. And the reason it was beautiful was she was ready to let go. She wasn't fighting. She wasn't afraid. She realized that she wasn't that body, which had been giving her some problems for a few years. She realized in her own way that um, her qualities and her aspirations, her consciousness itself, her love would certainly survive this uh, passage through the doorway of death. And um, chaplain from the hospital came in and gave her a blessing. I called Lama Kathy, who was on the phone right at that moment with Lama Tom. And they were prepared to do POA for her at the moment of her death. So I called them back at the moment that she died. And um, we were chanting her favorite prayer to her. And my brother had gotten his kids on the phone so she could hear all their voices um, in that last hour. The whole thing was palpably powerful and full of love. And I felt to myself, you know, one of the reasons that a situation like that, um, death, which is something many of us have an intrinsic or inherent fear of, the reason that can be so beautiful was that those mental habits had been softened in us. We'd worked on them. I'd worked on them, she's worked on them. And because we didn't assume anything about that moment, that moment could be whatever we wanted it to be. And that moment was full of love and was full of blessing. So the family all arrived the next day and the rehearsal dinner happened on uh, Saturday and the wedding happened on Sunday and it was a beautiful wedding, very happy wedding. And my mom was very present. It was kind of miraculous. Nobody had to block the tragedy. There wasn't tragedy. There was just love. And nobody also had to um, pay over much attention to anything but the bride and the groom. Um, it was very integrated and so on and so forth. I won't bore you with all the rest of the, the two months, but I, I felt that that was um, an important thing. And I thought to myself, why was this able to happen? I've been around other passings before and um, observed people and, and how it affects them. Um, and this was different in a good way. And what I have to say is that it happened in part because um, every day I practice it. And I was able to visit her every day for a long time, and she was able to practice it. And what happens is, is kind of like um, we all have this kind of multi-layered consciousness where we have our senses bringing us information and then we have our minds working on that and interpreting it and labeling it and then we have our reactions our habits our karma you know how we feel about things and all of that and underneath it all we don't actually see reality everything that we consider reality is filtered multiple times 
before we ever kind of put it together into the story we have about our own lives. There's that old, um, that old teaching story about someone falling down a well and their companions needing a rope to get them out. And there's a shed that's dark because, you know, in the times when this story was first told, there weren't any electric lights or anything like that. So you just had to open the door of the shed and see kind of in the darkness the best you can and get the tool you need well. So the companions open the door and they look in the dark shed and they recoil in horror because coiled up in the corner of the shed, there's a snake and they're afraid. Of course they're afraid, snakes are deadly particularly where this story was told in India, king cobras are very deadly. And they thought, oh my, it's a king cobra and we can't go in there and get this rope and our friends stuck down the well. What are we going to do? Well, of course, they're paralyzed in fear and they do nothing and the friend is stuck until some other idea can be hatched, which I assume eventually it was. Or somebody can get a lantern and look in the shed and see what's really there. And it turns out that in the corner of the shed, coiled up, isn't a snake. It's actually the rope. It's the rope itself. And so much of things are like that. Um, what gets in a in our way of seeing things as they are, of course, are habitual reactions. We recognize certain shapes and we interpret them in a certain way. And underneath of it all, um, we're gonna have some reaction to what we're seeing or what we think we see. And that reaction is what the Buddha meant by craving. When he said all of our problems come from craving and clinging, what he meant was our own reactions of loving something or hating something, that comes out of craving. That comes from craving what we want and also craving to get away from what we don't want. And the clinging part is the story we tell ourselves about it to justify it. So. You know, you can imagine the people coming back out of the shed and hollering down the well and say, we can't get you out. There's a problem. There's a big snake in there. And then, you know, we're afraid that we could be attacked and poisoned and die. And that's clinging. That's the story we tell ourselves about the thing that we perceive that we really like or we really don't like. What we don't generally do in the thick of things in life is to actually stop and peel away all of the things, all of the reactions of love or hatred and all of the story that we tell ourselves about why we love something or why we hate something we don't do that. But in, in our practice as Buddhists, what we're invited to do is exactly that. So at the beginning of every day, when we get up, um, I'll just speak about my own practice. Hopefully it'll be relatable in some way. Um, I have a little shrine in my house and I put out bowls for offerings and I make new offerings every day. So I start out the day thinking that, okay, whatever I have, I'm going to offer to the Buddha. And I expect that I'm accumulating some kind of merit, some kind of um, one of the causes or one of the conditions for actually uh, having the birth of wisdom 
in my own mind. So that's also what the Buddha said. Um, the birth of this awakened mind that we're looking for, the lights going on in the shed so we can see that the thing we thought would attack us is actually the tool we need. That awakened mind uh, comes from accumulating wisdom and merit. Merit comes from good qualities, from generosity and ethics and patience, from joyful diligence, from meditation itself, and from wisdom itself. So bringing all these things together and actually living our lives, thinking that rather than my habitual reactions, I'm going to try to bring these qualities to the table. By doing that, we accumulate uh, kind of a positive momentum. And that positive momentum carries through. It colors our day. And that's the kind of thing that I think can be really helpful. I just distracted myself. This is funny. Messages are coming up, and I can't multitask very well. Thank you for your messages. If I don't respond to them, it's just because of my own limitations. So anyway, we're always dealing with fear. And this is what I learned in the last couple months and why I wanted to talk about this this morning is that through practice, I was able to um, not react to everything that was happening, some of which was difficult, um, but not react out of fear, react instead with generosity and patience and ethics, those three in particular. And that set up the conditions needed for my mom to have actually a good death. And who could ask for anything more than that? We all, we all end up, you know, um, in the same place, rich or poor, large or small, fat or skinny, beautiful or ugly, doesn't matter. All of us, all of us end up in the same place. And so the goal with this daily practice is really to set up the causes and conditions to pass through that door well, because there's no avoiding it. We're all going to do it. So I open my shrine, like I said, make some offerings. I do a little um, meditation. I like to do shamatha meditation. And um, I brought a little meditation exercise from Minjur Rinpoche that I'd like to share with you in a minute. Um, then I do a little practice after that that um, takes different forms. But I'll also share the prayer that I use once when I wake up and reconnect with awareness underneath all my propensities and habits, um, then I like to actually color that space a little bit because I'm not an enlightened being yet. And it does help to start the day with something that's, um, let's say, mentally nutritious. So let me share this meditation with you first. After making offerings and sitting down on my cushion, I do a meditation that's something like this. This is the way Minjur and Pache, uh led it a long time ago when I met him up at KTD. He started out with this. This is not a meditation exercise. In fact, it's an exercise in non-meditation. A very old Buddhist practice that, as my father explained it, takes the pressure of thinking that you have to achieve a goal or experience some sort of special state 
in non-meditation, we just watch whatever happens without interfering. We are merely interested observers of a kind of introspective experiment with no investment in how the experiment turns out. Of course, when I first learned this, I was a pretty goal-oriented child. I wanted something wonderful to happen every time I sat down to meditate, so it took a while to get the hang of just resting, just looking and letting go of the results. So first, assume a position in which your spine is straight and your body is relaxed. Once your body is positioned comfortably, allow your mind to simply rest for three minutes. Just let your mind go as though you've just finished a long, difficult task. Whatever happens, whether thoughts or emotions occur, whether you notice some physical discomfort whether you're aware of sounds or smells around you or you or your mind is totally blank don't worry anything that happens or doesn't happen is simply part of the experience of allowing your mind to rest so now just rest in the awareness of whatever is passing through your mind. Just rest. Just rest. When the three minutes are up, ask yourself, how was that experience? Don't judge it. Don't try to explain it. Just review what happened and how you felt. You might have experienced a brief taste of peace or openness. That's good. Or you might have been aware of a million different thoughts, feelings, and sensations. That's also good. Why? Because either way, as long as you have maintained at least a bare awareness of what you're thinking or feeling, you've had a direct experience of your mind just performing its natural functions. So let me confide in you a big secret. Whatever you experience when you simply rest your attention on whatever is going on in your mind at any given moment is meditation. Simply resting in this way is the experience of natural mind. The only difference between meditation and the ordinary everyday process of thinking, feeling, and sensations is the application of the simple bare awareness that occurs when you allow your mind to rest simply as it is without chasing after thoughts or becoming distracted by feelings and sensations. In other words, we drop the craving and clinging. Like most people, I brought so much judgment to my experience. I believed that thoughts of anger, anxiety, fear, and so on, that came and went throughout the day were bad or counterproductive or at the very least inconsistent with natural peace. The teaching of the Buddha 
and the lesson inherent in this exercise in non-meditation is that if we allow ourselves to relax and take a mental step back, we can begin to recognize that all these different thoughts are simply coming and going within the context of unlimited mind, which is like space. Space remains fundamentally unperturbed by whatever occurs within it. So that's it, bringing back the example, the analogy. When we're in the middle of reacting, craving, wanting something we don't have, not wanting something we do have, telling ourselves big story all about it, uh, why it's terrible, why it's wonderful, why it doesn't matter, whatever story. And we just drop the story, drop the craving, drop the clinging, which doesn't mean making them disappear, just means stopping ourselves from identifying with it and saying, and, and reifying this judgment that I am this, or I am that, or I believe this or that. You just watch them from the point of a view of awareness. And what you see, and this will happen all the time, is that those experiences all have clarity to them. They're all luminous. You can discern, you can see by the light of what they bring you. And so if we don't get lost in the darkness of our judgment, in other words, closing the door behind ourselves and leaving ourselves in the dark with our judgments, the lights go on naturally because our minds are like that. They're limitless and they're luminous. They have that quality and we will be able to see and understand how to use the situation in front of us in order to at least harmonize with our aspirations for um, becoming who we are, this uh, Buddha to be. That's the whole game. So what happens is if we set it up in mourning with our meditation and we make offerings to this awakened nature and then we sit and familiarize ourselves again with our own inner qualities of luminous awareness, we can follow that with some prayer or some practice, whatever you like. I like guru yoga myself, and <clears throat> but that's not for everybody. So uh, one thing that I think is universally helpful with that is what's called the metta prayer. It's an excerpt from words the Buddha spoke called the Metta Sutra, which means the Loving Kindness Sutra. And I want to just read them as a follow-on to, um, uh, to that moment of offering and meditation. And all these things you can find online. Um, the Metta Prayer you'll find uh, it's all over the place if you Google it. That meditation that I read to you is um, from Minja Rinpoche's book, uh, The Joy of Living. Um, and I actually saw he was in KTD when he uh, taught us in that way. It was very powerful. So here's the meta prayer. In order that I may be skilled in discerning what is good, 
in order that I can understand the path to peace. Let me be able, upright, and straightforward, of good speech, gentle, confident, and free from pride. Let me be contented, easily satisfied, having few duties, living simply, of controlled senses, prudent, without pride and without attachment to nation, race, or other groups. Let me not do the slightest thing for which the wise might rebuke me. Instead, let me think, may all beings be well and safe. May they be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether moving or standing still, without exception, whether large, great, middling, or small, whether tiny or substantial, whether seen or unseen, whether living near or far, born or unborn, may all beings be happy. Let none deceive or despise another anywhere. Let none wish harm to another in anger or in hate. Just as a mother would guard her child, her only child, with her own life, even so, let me cultivate a boundless mind for all beings in the world. Let me cultivate a boundless love for all beings in the world above, below, and across unhindered, without ill will or enmity. Standing, walking, seated, or lying down, free from torpor, let me, as far as possible, fix my attention on this recollection. This, they say, is the divine life right here. So you can see, if you wake up and you just roll out of bed and get going and you're identified with all the uh, things going through your mind, like waves of thoughts and feelings and emotions and um, have that as your life that day, um, Wow, you can get pretty tired because things appear and disappear. They go up, they go down. Um, you can also get really tied up in knots because there's going to be a lot of stuff uh, that you get that you don't want. And there's going to be a lot of stuff you want that you don't get. That's just the nature of life. That's just part of the way things are designed, actually. So what the Buddha taught was that if we actually create the causes and conditions in our mind to look at what life unfolds for us from the point of view of awareness, from the point of view of actually our own awakened nature, we'll be able to respond with these qualities of love and compassion and some good things can happen because of that and we can have a little fun with it because we'll get insights from doing that it's always fun when you get an aha moment that's where they come from probably not on the cushion probably off the cushion when you see how creating the causes and conditions skillfully, things come together in surprising ways. Because at the end of the day, you know, you see the greatest of practitioners and they are laughing a lot. And that's why they're laughing. They're coming from this place of like, aha, you know, wonderful surprise. Um, Milarepa sang songs about that, you know. 
Things while not existing, they appear. How incredibly amazing. That's what he said. Kind of sweet. So our job right in the morning is to just stop. If we don't just stop and start from this place of awareness, we'll be running all day after this or that or away from this or that. We'll be covering, protect, trying to protect ourselves from this calamity or that calamity or this embarrassing thing that we did or that or hiding or distracting ourselves. And at the end of the day, we will have engaged in all kinds of habits that even can potentially become addictions uh, just because we didn't stop and create the causes and conditions for us to recognize, engage this um, Buddha nature that's been there, this treasure that's been there all the time. Just because we don't have interdependence in the front of our mind and realize that our running, covering, hiding, distracting is just creating the causes and conditions for more need for that and a vicious circle of bad habits uh, coming about. It's the most ethical thing in the world to begin with this sense of awareness and uh, the way that it came to me most strongly earlier in my um, life as a meditator was that it's all the ocean and that all these uh, mind events are like waves you know uh, emotion waves of emotion waves of sensation waves of thoughts and all the time, it's all just ocean. The thoughts, the emotions, the sensations, they come, they go. Just like in a, a wave appears and disappears. But the ocean's always there. So what meditation does in morning gives us the opportunity. Gives us the opportunity of a different vantage point rather than looking at what's happening in our lives uh, from the point of view of the wave, what wave are we on? We can look at the waves from the point of view of the ocean. And ultimately, we can see that the ocean is given birth to all those waves, whether we think of them as pleasant or unpleasant, wholesome or unwholesome, just like the beginning of that meditation I shared with you. It's all good. It's all the mind doing what it does. And as we begin to work with it that way, it naturally settles itself. There isn't any particular uh, magical formula or incantation that we need to do in order for this to occur. We just need to let it be as it is and identify with it as it is rather than the little manifestations, the little waves that come. Um, believe me when I tell you, there's no ocean in the world that sits there judging its waves saying, oh, that was a good one, or oh, that was an ugly wave. No, not at all. It observes them rising and falling and doing what they do. With that mind of letting go, if you've set up your mind for response through a prayer like the one I just read and shared, well, then obviously, um, at least for me, uh, for me, what happens is, is I'm in the middle of a situation and I'm reminded, hmm, I might have the opportunity for responding in a different way than I might normally react. And that might be helpful. I have one more story. This came from 
um, the Karmapa's book about meditation. It's a wonderful book. It's called Freedom Through Meditation. It's available actually for free now uh, from Dharma eBooks. Look it up online. Uh, it's got a tons of great stuff. So anyway, this was in the book and it, it demonstrates something like what I'm talking about. So the next question was for Venerable Bhante Sarampala about his personal experience in training policemen and firefighters. And then uh, Venerable Bhante Sarampala responded, before I respond to the question about training firemen and first responders, I would like to relate a personal experience in handling disturbing emotions. I tell many stories to my friends, colleagues, and students and one of these happened in 2000 when I was studying for my master's degree at McMaster University. I was staying nearby the university and one day I was going to class. I noticed someone who was looking at me with an angry face. I did not pay attention to him, but followed one of the techniques taught by the Buddha. When you notice someone who is angry and upset, do not pay attention to them. However, I was passing by this person. He yelled at me, what the hell are you doing here? I stopped and looked at him and said, sir, I'm a student at McMaster University. He asked, what's that thing you're wearing? To him, I looked like a complete alien in these robes. So I answered, I'm a Buddhist monk and this is my uniform. I don't have much time and I do not want to be late. Let me go to the campus. I know that you are angry and upset. May you be well, happy and peaceful. What did you say, he asked, and I repeated it. And he said, wait a minute, can I have a few seconds with you? I wanna talk to you. Can I have your phone number? Now, this is a stranger who yelled at me and I was thinking, here's a real test. I'm a simple Buddhist monk. I have nothing to gain and nothing to lose. So I said, okay, here's my number. But I never thought he would call me. And that evening he did. Can I come over and see you? He said, here's a person who has yelled at me, who is angry and wants to come see me. What if he kills me or does something else violent? Then again, I'm a Buddhist monk. And this is a real test to see if love and compassion work. And I said, yes, you can come. The next day he came, so I opened the door and offered him a seat. I said, sir, I'm a student and I don't have much. I have juice, cookies, and some donuts. Please help yourself. He was so surprised. And then he sat down. He had come to argue with me. And at the time I was treating him with kindness. So he completely changed and became very interested in my story. I told him about my whole life and showed him some pictures. He couldn't believe that he was talking to a Buddhist monk. We talked for three hours and after that we became good friends. Sir, if I invite you to my wedding, would you come and bless me? I said, no problem. Just let me know when and where. So I went to the wedding. They had an official program. When it was my turn to come onto the stage to bless them, my new friend took the mic and told the audience, this is the damn Buddhist monk who changed my life. <laughs> so this is my personal story, which I tell to everyone. If you are getting angry and upset with other people, you're not being a Buddhist. Transforming anger to loving kindness and compassion shows real Buddhist character and attitude. It is the real technique. I don't have to look at the angry person, but at myself. Ah, I'm looking at this person with an angry mind. This person is reacting to me with anger and I have to choose to react to them, not with anger, but with love and compassion, it works. 
and this is the best remedy. So um, I love that story. And I just want to follow on uh, putting this again in the context of daily morning meditation. Um, so if you happen to practice something like Chenrezig, and this is why I mentioned at first with the refuge prayer, it's good to practice in English. It's good to know what you're doing and think about it and contemplating it. So Chenrezig means loving eyes. That's what it means. And if you practice Chenrezig and as, you know, the capstone of your morning practice, let's say, um, and you become Chenrezig, the rest of the day you might be reminded to look at whatever you look at with loving eyes. This is a powerful technique. And in the Chenrezy practice, you also are instructed to see every being as Chenrezy also. And so if you regard every being as a bodhisattva, no matter how they're behaving, in other words, if you regard them as ocean instead of whatever wave they're manifesting, whether you like that wave or not, just drop all that. And simply respond with your own Buddha nature as a manifestation of that, as Chenrezig, with loving eyes. It'll transform your entire life. Um, I have another story that we'll save for next time about a prisoner that I work with and um, how in the most difficult circumstances short of dying, which is actually a difficult door to pass through. Um, his life has been transformed by doing practice every morning, and it's that simple. So um, I encourage you not to do what I say, but to find something that works for you. That little thing that I walked you through probably is about a 10 or 15 minute morning practice. And I think as practitioners, um, we need to be able to find that, at least that, to devote ourselves um, to awakening to things as they are, if we wish to follow the Buddha, because that's what he set out to do. And that's whose path that we are, that's whose footsteps we're walking in. So, um, it's 12.30, and it's time for me to um, end this uh, talk. I hope it's been a benefit to you all. Um, I want to uh, end it with a formal dedication that I'll share with you that I happen to love a lot. This is from Lama Zopa Rinpoche. Due to this merit, may we soon attain the enlightened state of Chenrezy, that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their sufferings. May the precious Bodhi mind not yet born arise and grow. May that born have no decline, but increase forevermore. Due to the positive potentials accumulated by myself and others, in the past, present, and future. May anyone who merely sees, hears, remembers, touches, or talks to me be freed in that very instant from all sufferings and abide in happiness forever. May the Dharma and all auspiciousness increase throughout the worlds and directions where I and others dwell. So thank you, everybody. Um, I really, really appreciate uh, sharing this Sunday morning with all of you. Um, and um, please remember to uh, 
connect to us at columbusktc.org. We, in our heart of hearts, want to build a wonderful sangha and um, really uh, support this path unfolding in this region and in this world. Thank you for joining us for this week's Dharma Talk. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, please subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes. To learn more about the Columbus Karma Teksum Choling or to donate to support our Dharma Talk series, please visit our website at columbusktc.org. The opening and closing music for the podcast is Tibetan Flute Song by Tamding Arts at tamdingarts.com. Please join us again next week for another Dharma Talk.